0: John Copenhagen and Al Warren Heard on KCB 106.5 FM Los Angeles 102.3 FM
1: Riverside and
0: 1050
1: AM Palm Springs. And now we've been, been doing a lot with JFK and of course we cover a lot with the CIA. We just had a spy on the last episode, everybody knows. So today we've got really lucky, and we've got uh, Jefferson Morley. So, uh, Jeff, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for yeah. having me.
2: Thanks so, for having
1: me. Yeah, Jeff, boy, you've, sure, uh, you've been in the news, of course, and, and books. I've been through two of them, Our Man in Mexico and uh, the CIA, Secret Assassination Files, JFK. Wow. Um, wow. And, of course, you've got the website, so you've got lots to do with JFK and CIA. And uh, let's talk, first of all, about uh, the lawsuit with Morley v. CIA and what's been going on there.
3: So um, just for the background of your viewers, Morley v. CIA is a lawsuit seeking certain JFK assassination files um, by a, a deceased mid-level CIA officer named George Joanides. And uh, I launched this litigation in nineteen two thousand three, uh because I thought Joan Ees was an interesting witness to the assassination story. He was a CIA officer who served in Miami and New Orleans in nineteen sixty three and was thus in a position to know about events leading up to the assassination, um, uh including uh the events involving Lee Harvey Oswald. So um, the CIA stonewalled this request, uh, and uh, I appealed and won, and won a batch of documents which revealed a great deal more about Joe Anini's uh, activities at that time. So, uh, The question before the CIA this year was whether the agency would pay my court costs for this litigation. Now usually, in, a, in litigation like this, if the plaintiff wins on appeal, the government has to pay your expenses. It's just kind of a basic fairness thing, and also it's good public policy. The, the government can't capriciously reject people's requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. Otherwise, they're going to pay. So I had substantially prevailed, and but the CIA refused to pay my court costs. Mm. That was the core. That was the, the the issue before the court this week. And on Monday, we received a ruling. So you've got a little bit of news here. And by a two-to-one margin, the D.C. Court of Appeals um, rejected my request for court costs and sided with the CIA. And one of the judges who voted in the majority on that decision was Judge Brett Kavanaugh. The decision was filed in D.C. federal court at about 4.20 in the afternoon. By 9 o'clock that night, of course, President Trump was introducing Brett Kavanaugh as his nominee to be the next Supreme Court justice. So we have a decision, the latest decision in, in the case, um, in which Kavanaugh sided with the CIA against me. So that, that's the state of, of, of that case right now. Um, the, an important part of the story is that one of the judges, it was a two-to-one decision, and one of the judges, Judge Karen Henderson, came out strongly in my favor and was quite critical of Kavanaugh's decision um, and said that I clearly deserved court fees and that my request was not trivial or minimal as the government said, but was in fact important so I had some support uh, very strong support from judge Karen Henderson who um, uh, is also on the d c Court of appeals so that's the state of the of the of the lawsuit right now and um you know, I feel that uh, the government's position is, is is not tenable, as this dissent shows. So, I plan to appeal this latest uh, decision because it's unfortunate, um, and uh, the case will go on. Right.
1: What's this do? And what 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 is this? Um. How does this make you feel about uh, Kavanaugh and him going to the Supreme Court? Um. Favoring the well, CIA Does, is, is this a good move or, or is this bad? Uh, I,
3: I, I think it's, I think it's bad. I mean, I was saying that this information was that I found was in the public interest, that it benefited the public, uh, which it clearly did um, uh, a lot. There's been a lot of media interest in this case. The New York Times has written about it. The Associated Press, uh, James Rosen on Fox News covered this story. Um, the Boston Globe, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to this lawsuit. And for the court to just come out and say, oh, well, there was no benefit to that. I mean, to me, Kavanaugh was bending over backwards to side with the government. And, you know, you look for the courts to be an independent force and not to be automatically aligned with government agencies. And to me, he went out of his way to align himself with the CIA and, you know, disparage what, you know, maybe I'm wrong. But to disparage a good faith effort to find out more information about a very important event, the assassination of the president, you know, like I say, I think Judge Kavanaugh is bending over backwards on behalf of the CIA. And that's, you know, unfortunate. I look at his record now and, and I see how he's ruled in other Freedom of Information Act cases. And, you know, he defers to the national security agencies. He defers to them over the public. So that's you know that's part of his record and now his decision in my case
2: is also part of his record yeah yeah so oh go ahead so you know it, it's kind of confusing how the government decides what they're going to keep classified and what they're able to release if somebody okay. asks for it but now that you have won this do you think that it's going to open up more floodgates and more and more is information is going to be released now that you've won this?
3: Well, no, I I, I have not, I did not win this case. Judge Judge Kavanaugh ruled for the majority
2: and which said that
3: there was no benefit to what I did and that my court costs won't be covered. So, um, no, so, no, it's quite the opposite. This sends a message to people who are trying to get information out of the government that even if you get something significant over the government's objections, the government's still not going to, you know, still, the government's not going to compensate you. So the government can get away with bad decisions. Is basically the legacy of what Kavanaugh is saying.
2: Uh, yeah, it's like, you know, I, I misunderstood. I, I thought you had right? won it up
3: No, no, no. I mean, Judge Henderson was very strongly in my favor, but she was the one against the two, Judge Kavanaugh and. Uh, Judge uh, Katzis, um Judge Gregory Katzis were the majority. So I lost. And I think that, you know, we have a snapshot here of Kavanaugh's, you know, style of jurisprudence in the national security area. You know, he he, he to me, he gives the benefit of the doubt. He bends over backwards for the CIA. He certainly did that in this case.
1: You know, I was going to say um, what seems to be the issue With them holding back so much information, I mean, October of seventeen, they were supposed to release all the files that a lot of them didn't get released. Yes, Uh, yes. What's the deal? Like, why? What? What are they hiding?
3: You know, that's that's a great question because you know the fact is that Congress passed this law twenty five years ago and said, you know, within twenty five years, let's just make everything public, right? It was very strong. Full disclosure law. So, the twenty fifth anniversary of that law comes around last October, and everybody's paying attention. Like, wow, is you know, there's a lot of material still secret. What are we going to get? And what we got was more cover up. And so, the CIA went to Trump and they said, we can't possibly release all this. Give us six more months. So Trump gave them six months. So on April, in April of this year, the CIA released a bunch of, and other government agencies. CIA and FBI primarily, and they released a lot of material, 20, 30,000 pages. But, and this is a big but, they kept another 15,000 pages of material secret. Now, the, the intent of Congress was quite clear. Like, let's just get everything out there Right. And the CIA and FBI are still coming around after 25 years and saying, oh, no, 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 we've got to keep this stuff secret, and we've got to keep that stuff secret. So that was very disappointing. Trump agreed to that. I don't know why. I think you know he's got
2: other things on his mind. Right. But anyway, he
3: didn't stick up for the public interest. And you know, so the context of this is people have tried all reasonable means to get this information public. Congress passed a law and passed it unanimously. You know, the media pays attention, and still the CIA and the secret agencies have the ability to keep this stuff out of the public record. So. That's very discouraging, and that's the context of Kavanaugh's decision. What are they hiding? You know, this is a game where the government wants you to get into it and and say, oh, you know, they're hiding evidence of a conspiracy to kill JFK. And then the government will turn around and point at you and say, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're nuts, get out of here. Well, I don't play that game. What they're hiding is what they're hiding. They are very clear that they want to hide a great deal of material about JFK's assassination. And it seems from this ruling that Brett Kavanaugh is okay with that. So that's kind of your question sets the context for his decision. And, you know, we just see there's no will in the judiciary to make the government obey the law. There's no will in Washington to make the government obey the law.
1: Around JFK assassination files. That's my you know, that's what I take away from all of this. Wow. I, I just I yeah. just I just have to wonder where it's going. Like how, how many times are can they get away with this? How many times can they keep putting it off
3: Well the agreement with Trump was that the whole thing has to be now resolved by twenty twenty one. So, you know, oh, but what I think is, you know, the CIA rolled, to me, the CIA rolled Trump in October. They rolled him again, in you know, in April. And in 2021, whoever is president, they're going to believe, not without reason, that they can roll that person, too, and keep these records secret forever. You know, so, I mean, I don't know what other conclusion to reach. I, I don't want to reach that, but, you know, it's like it's
2: very clear the path that they've set out. And they're kind of just confirming people's beliefs that they're hiding something. If they just keep kicking this can down the road. You know, so far they've been able to convince a large portion of the public, ah, there's nothing to see here. You know, go back to the Warren Commission and, you know, just just don't worry about this. Okay, I'll go back to sleep. But now if they keep, uh uh-oh, you know, no, 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 you can't see this. You can't see this. They're just confirming people's beliefs.
3: Yes. Now, let me just say one thing. I don't want to say I don't want to speak on behalf of the CIA, but you know they are a secretive institution. the the the, the their, It's their job to keep secrets, so they sort of keep secrets reflexively. And I understand that, and I understand that in their profession they have to do that. But what I don't understand is when the public interest is so clear, you know, people just want to know. Just put it out there. You know, it's not it's not a big deal that. You know that their behavior can, like you say, it can, confirms the suspicion. Why wouldn't you think that they were concealing something significant? I mean, they are—they are hiding things, lots of things. So let me just say one thing about that: though, why they hide lots of things, because now there's fifteen thousand different documents that remain classified in some way. They might have a word missing, or you know, redacted. Or a paragraph, or the identity of a person, or they might be blacked out, you know, the whole page. I've seen, we've seen that too mm-hmm. in these cases. You know, there might be some justification for that, you know, somewhere, but in general, it's like there is no justification for it. But what we have to do as JFK researchers is now we have to go through 15,000 documents, you know, and that's like, that's not simple. That takes a long time. And so what they do is, I think that, you know, 14,900 of those documents are completely unimportant. Yeah. And 100 of them might be important. And so mm-hmm. by keeping 15,000 secret, it makes it much harder to find the 100 that are important. And that, I think, is what is going on. They're building a haystack so that they can stick the needle in it.
1: Ah, well, uh-huh. that, that, that's strange. You know, I think uh, the CIA is there to protect Americans. And this is something that's uh, 50 years old. What is yeah. it? What is it they're protecting Americans from? That's what's confusing to me. I, I okay. because it's 50 it, years ago. I mean, yeah, but w- let me, let, let me uh, offer some
3: speculation on that. And this is the subject of my next book, and I hope to, you know, be able to present it in a more precise and completely corroborated form. But, you know, what are they scared of? I think the story from 1963 that was never disclosed to the Warren Commission and was not uncovered by the various other investigations was that there were authorized CIA operations involving Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin, in the summer of 1963. So CIA officers were running an operation involving Oswald at the time that Oswald, the president was killed and Oswald was arrested for the crime.
2: And I think that what they are
3: hiding is the existence of those operations. Now, those operations could have been connected to a conspiracy to kill the president or they could have had nothing to do with the fact that the president was killed. We don't know that, but I think that is what they are hiding. Is And so you say, oh, well, you know, who cares about that? But if you're inside the CIA and you, you're looking at a secret like that, you know, if that came out, that could affect your budget next year. That's not some random minor issue. You know, if something big about the CIA and JFK came out, the agency could take a hell of a hit you know, and they did in the 1970s, you know, when when the public got fed up with CIA spying on Americans and that sort of thing in the 1970s, you know, the agency's budget was cut, the people were laid off, the agency was curbed, it had to do, you know, new things to abide by the law, and so, you know, that's what, there is a real downside today to full JFK disclosure. It's remarkable to realize that, but I believe that's true. And I think that this court decision absolutely
2: confirms that. The CIA does not want to talk about this today. Yeah. Now, now that's the impact on them, but what do you think the impact on society would be if they did release those documents?
3: Well, you know, the the documents might be inconclusive. Um, people are going to think what they think about JFK regardless. Um, you know, um, or they could have something that decisively changes our mind. You know, I don't make up my mind about the evidence before I've seen it. To me, it could go either way. Um, so, you know, but, that, but that's the point of, you know, transparency is put it out there and that shows the government's acting in good faith. That would be the most important thing to demonstrate in all of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, to me, it almost seems like it's something that they still do today. And um, by learning what they did back then and how they do it and and who's involved, I think, has to affect somebody and what they're doing today.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, that's right. They are protecting, quote, sources and methods, unquote. And the sources and methods of 1963 are also the sources and methods of 2018. And the C CIA has as much in court documents related to my case.
1: I was going to say like in your um secret assassination files of JFK book mm-hmm. there were items that you specifically thought and listed that it, it, it's still unknown what? things that people uh we need to know and this we're going to find out in the release what what subjects do you think we still don't know and and they're still not not releasing to us
3: well first just let, let me say a couple of things there's cia and jfk is a kindle ebook um easily available on amazon um for a low price and it recapitulates some of the journalism that i've done over the years about cia in uh the jfk story so that's what cia and jfk is all about And I think what the the book shows is that this question of Cuba operations in 1963, psychological warfare operations in 1963, psychological warfare operations against the Fair Play for Cuba committee, the leftist group that supported Fidel Castro, these are the most sensitive issues when it comes to JFK records um, still to this day. I think that operations in this area involving Lehar Vyazal is probably the thing that really they're seeking to hide the most. I could be wrong. They could be hiding other things as well. Um, you know, that's what that's what we have to see. So that's where that's where I think there's more to be learned. Um so, uh, and in my lawsuit, um, uh, I sought more information about George Joannidis, who was a CIA officer who was in a position to know about these sorts of operations. He was in Miami. He was in New Orleans. Um, he was working with Cubans who knew Oswald. So, you know, all the secrecy around him revealed by my lawsuit further encourages me to think. And to, to believe that's what's you know that's what they're trying the hardest to conceal, so it's it, 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 it's somewhere in there. Now, um, in that book, I some of the things that I identified have come out, although you know in high again in still in redacted form. So we have learned more about the story, but there's still a lot of stuff, a lot of material that is secret
1: you know one thing i find interesting is why trump would uh, go along with the cia when he's got such a um opposition to them and everything they do publicly
2: yeah uh, it's a contentious uh, relationship
1: uh, yeah so when he has that and and almost a lot of supporters of his are conspiratorial so in a way wouldn't it have been better for him to force their hand and just have them expose it
3: yeah I- Yes, I think I, I, I think politically, you know, in, in in the in the in the big picture, public mm-hmm. politics. I mean, that's why I was I was hopeful. I'm not I'm not a fan of the president, but he is a wild card, and he is independent of these agencies. And I hope that he would act that way. Um, he didn't, and I think the reason why is because you know when the door closes and the cameras are off, right? right. Trump has to, has to make some hard decisions and. When your national security people are coming to you and saying, you know, we cannot possibly release this stuff, you know, he doesn't need to pick a fight with the CIA. I mean, the president has a lot of enemies in Washington and he needs friends. He can't afford to have enemies in the CIA. And so I think his calculation was, I'm going to go along on this one because, you know, I don't want to fight with, uh, with these people. And I also think the CIA went to him and said, This is really, really important to us. Do not mess with us on this one. We have to have your concession. And I think when they said that, you know, when your national security people say to you, we've got to have this, most presidents cave because, you know, that's you're the guy in charge and you don't want somebody to say, oh, you went against your national security apparatus, you know, the people who are keeping everybody safe. So I think Trump caved.
1: Yeah, it's really, it's it's sort of surprising is all for me. I think uh, I didn't expect him to. Um, a, a lot of your writings deal with CIA and a, a lot of what you're doing, um, our men in Mexico and all this stuff. What drew you into um, writing so much about the CIA?
3: So I came to Washington as a young reporter in the 1980s and you know I was just wanted to do journalism in Washington and the big story in the 1980's was the civil wars in Central America you had a leftist government take power in Nicaragua we had a very strong leftist movement fighting for power in El Salvador and Guatemala and when President Reagan was elected he said you know we're gonna put these rebellions down we're not gonna negotiate we're gonna crush them and so the politics in the United States in the 1980s, from 1982 to 1986, certainly, were really dominated by the question of was the U.S. going to intervene in Central America? Should the U.S. intervene? And how should the U.S. intervene? And while that was going on, the CIA was deeply involved in Reagan administration policy. So if you wanted to understand the big political story of the day, Nicaragua and El Salvador, you had to know something about the CIA. And so I got into that right away and started reporting and you know i i broke some you know big stories uh i found out about what was going on behind the scenes so that was the origin of my interest um jfk came later uh i became interested in that uh uh and i realized as i was doing this work that you know i was coming to the scene 30 years after the fact right i was in kindergarten when he was killed. I'm going to date myself there. So, you know, I, I, I what did I know? So I always thought, from a journalistic point of view, I mean, I could come, I could study the record and come up with a theory, and I've done that and changed my theory many times. But you know what? Who, who cares about Morley's theory? You know, I mean, ultimately, you know, if I came up with some theory, who would care? What I thought would be more interesting would be to go back and find. CIA people at the time and try and understand what did the crime look like in their eyes. And so that was really kind of one of the, the motivating things for my first book, Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden Hit.
0: How would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: History of the CIA. And this book, also available on Amazon, is a very, it's a biography of a spy. Winn Scott was the CIA's top man in Mexico in 1963. He had a front row seat on the Kennedy assassination. He wrote a memoir late in life in which he talked about his impressions of the JFK case. And so that, I thought, would be interesting. I didn't, nobody cares what Morley thinks, but here was a guy who was on the inside. What did he think? And so Our Man in Mexico is an attempt to tell his story and to portray the assassination of a president as it appeared to a super competent, super loyal CIA insider. And that's, you know, the book is really, I think, valuable in that regard because you see clearly what he thought. And what Wynne Scott thought was something had gone very wrong in Dallas and the president had been killed by his enemies. Scott wasn't sure who, but he was sure that that was the case. And he wrote that before he died. So. That's where I, you know, that's where I come in is trying to understand what did this crime look like in the eyes of the CIA. And that's, you know, as the lawsuit shows, it's still a very sensitive question.
2: Now, over over the years, have you interviewed people from other agencies like NSA, FBI, and what were their opinions and their views different from CIA? Um.
3: I have interviewed widely. I mean, most of the people, most of the sort of the agents, uh, you know, are dead. In fact, I I think it's safe to say all of them are. But, you know, studied the testimony uh, 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 in various investigations. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the big picture of the JFK investigation,
2: this was a politically
3: controlled investigation right from the start. Um, And the latest releases in 2017 confirmed that. One of the memos, that came out, um, which we only had before in partial form, and now we have the complete document, is written you know, the day after Kennedy is killed. Um, a suspect, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, has been arrested and denied involvement in the crime. And J. Edgar Hoover writes a memo for the record and says, we have to convince the public that Oswald is the real assassin and had no accomplices. So that was the order from on high from the moment the crime was committed so the, the investigation had not even begun and J Edgar Hoover was dictating the conclusion and 9 months later that is the conclusion that the Warren Commission reached that Oswald right. was the real assassin nobody else was involved unfortunately a little man shot a big man it's too bad we're very sorry now let's move on now you know that was the story, and it was like it was it was not convincing. You know, it it, it didn't convince people.
2: Well, so, were those his literal words though? Because you said a word in there that's very key that we have to convince the public that he's the real assassin, uh, which tells me that there may have been other options at the time. Absolutely, no, and that and that is a direct quote that Oswald is the real assassin,
3: and, and it's a very revealing use of words because that is clearly what he was thinking and so the investigation has not begun and he is ruling out the possibility that anybody else is involved that's by its very nature suspicious and so you know now fast forward 50 years later you know we're asked to stand by this very suspicious conclusion that was reached before the investigation began it's just it's just, you know, most people can't accept
2: that. <laughs> no, not at
3: all.
1: You now, what's it like investigating when you're asking questions and when you're prying and pushing buttons and dealing with CIA and dealing with people that this is what they do for a living? Uh, what's the reactions to your investigating?
2: Well, how did you earn your trust first?
1: Well, um uh... One of the arts of being a
3: newspaper reporter, which I've been my whole adult life, is that you, um, you know, know how to put people at ease and get them to talk to you. And so when I talk to retired CIA people about these events or people, you know, people who were agents of the CIA, not employees, um, you know, if you're not. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not like, I'm not looking to put them away and I'm not prosecuting any conspiracy theory of the Kennedy assassination. So when I talk to these people, I say, here's a document, you know, what was going on back then, you know, tell me about it. And so if you're not like prosecuting a case against somebody and you're talking about something that was important in their life, and this story is important to many people in their lives, I find that people will open up and talk to you. Now, In my dealings with the CIA in court, they are quite hostile. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 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 a few personal meetings that we had in person, uh, you know, these people would give you the dead fish handshake, they would give you the BDI, they were quite visibly and personally hostile when they were in my presence. So but, you know, that's fine. That's, that, that, that happens when you're a reporter. You know, uh, uh, I, I take it as a badge that, you know, I was on to something important if they were worried, that, that worried about it. So, um, so you know, it's, uh, it's hard sometimes. It's, you know, it's taken many years, so you have to be patient. Um, I have a lot of uh, supporters um, at JFK, the JFK Facts website, jfkfax.org. Um, you know, we get a couple thousand people a day there. Um, they seem to support what I'm doing and, uh, uh, you know, that kind of personal encouragement that people care about this and want to, you know, want to see it through. That helps me go. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a varied experience. It's not, it's not easy to do. But here's the thing, you know, nobody ever came to me and said, Jeff, you're way off base. There's nothing to this, or, you know, that's a crazy theory. I mean, it's not a crazy theory because I don't have a theory. It's all facts. And nobody's ever said, well, that's BS, Jeff, or you're wrong, or get lost, or you're misinterpreting it. No, nobody's ever said that. Everybody looks at the story and says, wow, that's interesting. What's the explanation? And so I go to the government and I say, well, what's the explanation? And you get totally stonewalled. So, <laughs> what, you know, I, it, I, that's where we're at right now. You know, uh, we've made some headway in understanding the story about the CIA in 1963. I understand the CIA doesn't want to talk about that in 2018, but you know, I believe in the system, and I think someday, you know, they will have to talk about it. So that's all we can do.
1: Out of all the theories and the books and the people that have written about this assassination, you know, from Roger Stone to uh, Max Holland to you name it. Um, sure. Who who do you feel is the closest, or who who's who's done the best research for you? Um, in
3: terms of the uh, the JFK books that are out there, um, a book that made a big impression on me early on, um, when I first realized around nineteen, well, around the time of Oliver Stone's movie, right? Um, you know, I, I I knew about the assassination and I, and I reported a lot on the CIA, but I didn't, I wasn't wasn't an expert by any means in the subject. Um, So I went back to try and read the books on the subject, and I started with the first books that were written so that I could understand how the story unfolded. And um, uh, there was a a book written in 1967 by a woman named Sylvia Marr called um, Accessories After the Fact, which was a very careful dissection of the Warren Commission. It was There was no theory in it. It, was, it. it simply argued that the Warren Commission's conclusions did not follow from their evidence. So that was a very careful early book that I liked. Then, in 19, uh, around 1980, there was another book that I found that was very good in a very different way. Um, Anthony Summers, a, a, a British journalist, did a book um, called Not in Your Lifetime and Summers did a lot of original reporting and that book opened my eyes up he did a lot of original reporting in 1978, 79, 80 um, and I realized you know the, 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 the National Press Corps in the United States simply had not done the obvious you know, shoe leather reporting about you know, witnesses to the assassination and um, and I realized, you know, how much journalists in 1964 had totally deferred to the government and said, "Oh, the Warren Commission said this, and therefore it has to be true." Summers came along and interviewed a lot of people and showed there was many, many reasons to think that it wasn't. So that was a very important book to me. Um, a third book that was uh, that was really very important was is called "Oswald and the CIA" by my friend John Newman. Mm-hmm. And John is a, uh, was in Army intelligence for 20 years. He's a Chinese speaker and was stationed in Japan and did a lot of signals intelligence work with Chinese military. Very high level, very high level intelligence work. A super grounded guy, not, no political axe to grind. He's very kind of, I would say, centrist in his political views.
2: But with a military
3: man, with the precision, kind of the precise mind of a military man. Um, And he's got a Ph.D. in history, and he's, he's a good historian himself. And his book, Oswald and the CIA, I think was really revelatory for me because it showed just how much the CIA knew about Oswald before the assassination. And so that's a line of investigation that I have pursued since then. In my books, Our Man in Mexico and the Ghost, which is my new biography of James Angleton, another CIA officer, have pursued this and showed just how much the government knew about Oswald before the assassination of Kennedy. And that's important because it shows that, you know, the fundamental statement of the Warren Commission, that this disturbed man came out of nowhere and shot the president for no apparent reason, that's the official story. Well, he didn't come out of nowhere. Okay, let, let's leave aside what happened in in Dealey Plaza. He was well known to a dozen top CIA officers in the fall of 1963, when JFK was still alive. So that fact alone, to me, tells us the Warren Commission is not an adequate description of the crime. Period, and, and it has nothing to do with who fired a gun in Dealey Plaza. Okay, it's not Oswald the fact that Oswald was well-known to the upper echelon of the CIA has to be incorporated into the official understanding, the popular understanding of how the president was killed. That's not a conspiracy theory. That's just that's the facts of the matter now. And I think that what we're going to see is that reality is sinking in. And I think it's even sinking in at the CIA. They are going to have to come clean at some point about this. The problem that we have is, you know, federal judges like Brett Kavanaugh are protective of the CIA's interests. And so it's very hard to get at all the information.
1: How do you think <laughs> this affects us now, today? Um, do we have to worry about the president being assassinated in the same way and the same types of, I don't know, how do you say cover-ups or the same type of operations working behind the scenes to keep oh. it from the public? You know, I think it's a mistake to
3: get that literal, right. um, you know, I mean, thing, we live in a different time, uh, people contend for power in a very different way. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think I hesitate to jump to that conclusion that feels a little paranoid to me. I mean, yes, you know, we should, sometimes we need to err, you know, on the side of being overly suspicious. But I, I don't like to, you know, make that a habit. So I don't think that I don't think the problem is literally that, you know, we face a danger of, of assassination. I think the problem is that we need a system that is transparent and that these secret agencies can be held accountable. You know, and, and, and that's what we don't have now, is the secret agencies are very powerful. And so, you know, um, and and how do we know that they're obeying the law? How do we know that they're not spying on us? How do we know that they're not assassinating someone? You know, it's very hard for us to know. So I think that the, what, the, what the, the reason why the JFK story still resonates is because people feel that, you know, there is this side, the secret side of government still has the ability to prevail against, you know, the public good somehow. And, Those fears take a lot of different forms, and there's a lot of different politics around that. But I think the importance of this story is that you know it it really undermines confidence in this that we can have that our democracy can hold secret government agencies accountable. You know, and so I think it has a I think it has a corrosive effect. I think that's the you know that's the worst part of it. Um, You know, what's going on behind the scenes? I mean, you know, that's a tough call. We can be sure something is, but we don't know what it is.
2: Well, here recently we've kind of gotten a glimpse behind the curtain with this recent scandal with the FBI agents texting each other, you know, saying saying things such as, you know, he can't be the president, we're going to stop him which implies that they may have some kind of a plan or that they at least think that they can coalesce enough to perhaps try it again, you know, maybe just short of assassination.
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I think that the FBI's investigation of president Trump's campaign was completely proper and justified under law enforcement reasons that were available to the FBI I think the notion that the FBI was a cockpit of support for Hillary Clinton is absurd. I know lots of FBI agents in general; they're very conservative, so I don't, I don't buy that conspiracy theory. But the fact of the matter is, is that in these, in this secret system, there is potential for abuse, and I, you know, people are going are going to, you know, sometimes suspect it, and we need to we need a system that is transparent enough. And we can resolve that to people's satisfaction and that the system, you know, the power of these secret agencies was not abused. So um, that's the the power of the secrecy system is what undermines everybody's confidence.
1: On your latest book, The Ghost, The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton, how, how do you... Go about picking who you're going to write about. How do how do you decide uh, which person in the CIA or in this sort of business you're going to follow through on?
3: Well, after writing the first book um, about Wynne Scott, um, Wynne Scott was you know in the Office of Strategic Services during World War II. The OSS was the precursor to the CIA. It was. America's first foreign intelligence agency. And so when Scott was present at the creation of the CIA in 1947, and he served with distinction for the next 25 years. So in, in following his career in, you know, intimate, almost daily detail, I came to know the history of the CIA in that period, and I was quite fascinated, and it was a very important story. The CIA went from not existing in 1947 to being you know, a worldwide power with, with immense powers for violence, propaganda, subversion all over the world. It's an, an astonishing story, really, if you think about it. So Winscott was one of the important people in there. And so when I settled on James Angleton for my second CIA book, it was for the same reason. He was an important personality in this formative moment in the U.S. intelligence community. Um, when Scott was very powerful in Mexico, he was out in the field. Angleton was more the headquarters type. He was very powerful at CIA headquarters in Washington and then in Langley. So their careers illustrate different aspects of the CIA story. But I was trying to capture the CIA in this formative period because the system that was created in those years is to a remarkable extent, the system under which the CIA still operates today. Certainly the internal organization of the CIA has not changed that much. So um, that's where my interest comes. I'm also interested in, you know, people who are just interesting characters. And when Scott was a charismatic guy. He thought himself a poet, he was married three times, you know, he was a complex, interesting man, even if, you know, I didn't always like what he was doing. Um, extremely bright. Um, James Angleton was was very fascinating in a different way, a, a, a very uh, intellectually charismatic man, forceful, brilliant, erudite, but also strange, paranoid, isolated. And so, he was another person who, another CIA man whose personality I just thought was interesting to write about. You know, a lot of times spying is a, is a, can be a very bureaucratic profession. And the people who rise to the top of the CIA are sometimes quite boring just because they're bureaucrats. <laughs> um, these, these were interesting men. And so th- those books, uh, uh, you know, I was looking both to tell a story about how the CIA came to be. Um, and also, you know, just a good story about, you know, who were these men who made the world we live in?
1: So, so does it portrayed uh, properly by Hollywood as in like James Bond and stuff like that? Do these spies live that kind of wildlife? Jason Bourne. <laughs> no, no, no.
3: Bond and Bourne are, are, are you know, they're a complete illusion. Um, you know, like I said, spying is a bureaucratic business. You have to write down keep a lot of records, um, sit around and wait and do nothing for, you know, long periods of time. So um, it's almost the opposite of that swashbuckling lifestyle that's portrayed in Hollywood. Um, you know, but the depiction of a, the life of a CIA officer on, you know, on the, on the series Homeland, on the other hand, you know, obviously dramatized and hyped, but um, conveys some more of the realities, much more... Uh, conforms much more to the world and the lives that those people
2: actually pursue. Well, thanks for ruining that for me, Jeff. Laura
1: Laura Croft isn't real? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Have, Have you ever felt threatened or been scared about some sort of event that happened with you when you were working or searching out the CIA?
3: You know, uh, no, I mean, I've, I've, a couple of times when I've been out in the field doing interviews, I wonder, um, you know, uh, and I take some basic precautions. But no, I, I, you know, I don't think that my work threatens anyone. Um, and maybe that's just naivete on my point of view. But um, uh, uh, so, no, I don't. Uh, I don't. I felt I felt afraid or taken much greater precautions in other reporting assignments that I've had. So, no, I mean, I will say that one time I called up the CIA and asked them for comment on some the story I was doing. And the guy said, Oh, Mr. Morley, this is quite <laughs> a big file.
2: And
3: I realized he was like flipping through the file of all the times I had called them, you know, so I'm sure my file is quite fat and, uh, you know, they don't like me and say awful things about me behind my back.
1: But, You know, in terms of being scared, no. Um, Um, They're listening right now. I mean, that's... Yeah.
3: I mean, this is the other thing is, you know, like JFK, the JFK story has driven lots of people crazy. I mean, clinically crazy. It is a crazy inducing subject. And the way the government has responded to it will make you even crazier. So I really try hard to like fence out the crazy and just say, you know, I'm not going to deal with it or I'm not going to think about it. And so, you know, part of that thing about being paranoid, no, I'm really going to choose not to be paranoid. And if that's naive, I'd rather live naive than live paranoid, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Makes for a better life. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, so, um, now, um, if you want to give out your website, uh, that would be great. We also have all of your books linked up on our, um, our website as well. So. Yeah. So let me just,
3: let me just say, so if you're interested in the JFK subject, um, I blog regularly at JFKfacts.org, um And uh, you know, welcome email from people, people send, I've, we've gotten some fabulous original material from people just sending me things out of the blue um, An interview, a video interview with the widow of Bill Harvey, who is another one of these, big CIA men in the early days, like Wynne Scott and James Angleton. A uh, very interesting interview, which is up on the site. Um, uh, so uh, there's original information. And, you know, we're not pushing any conspiracy theory. We welcome all points of view. Um, we're just interested in the subject and talking about it in a sane and realistic way. Um, and my book's kind of follow that same uh, dictum. I'm not pushing any conspiracy there. I'm trying to depict what the CIA was like in the early days. Our Man in Mexico talks about how the CIA exercised its influence in revolutionary Mexico in the 1960s, a very tumultuous and interesting time. Uh, The Ghost uh, is the biography of James Angleton, a very intelligent, strange, compelling top CIA official in the 60s and 70s, very involved in the JFK story, involved in the surveillance of Oswald, but also in the surveillance of the anti-war movement and the Watergate affair, so somebody who was involved in many different things in the government, and the book you alluded to also, CIA and JFK, which is not a hardcover book, but a Kindle e-book, um, which collects my journalism, you know, about this subject. So those are all available on Amazon. And if people are interested in what I'm talking about here, that's the, you know, that's the way to understand more because there's a lot more to the story. And I, in those books, I really tell it in a way that is
1: accessible and yet
3: informative.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. Our guest has been Jefferson Morley. Thanks for being on the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. To find-